So we have been exploring uh, recently the, a passage from the book of Isaiah, which was actually a prophecy, or is a prophecy, of the coming Messiah. And we've been looking at, at various facets of this same passage over the season of Advent, and now we're in the season of Christmas. I don't know if you know this or not. Protestants are really bad at this kind of stuff. It's just okay. Um, because it's, it's all made up. It's not out of here. It's just out of history. But, uh, the four Sundays prior to Christmas are the four Sundays of Advent intended to be a season of anticipation as we await the celebration of the birth of Christ. And then Christmas Day, uh, begins the season of Christmas, which lasts for, wait for it, can you guess? Nope. Twelve days. Very good. All right. Um, and uh, that season of Christmas lasts until what's called Epiphany, which is where the church has historically celebrated the, the arrival of the Magi to uh, Bethlehem to visit the, the baby Jesus. And so traditionally... And I like our our city government has this figured out. My um, my wonderful wife was very eager to get her Christmas tree taken down and get all the Christmas decorations packed up and put back in the attic. And to the to the bah humbugs of her children and husband, who you know would not let her take it down on Christmas Day before we drove to Houston to see my parents. She literally wanted to take it down Christmas Day and have it done. So, uh, but we got back from Houston later in the week and then we took the, all the decorations down and packed them all up, put them in the attic and I had this this bare tree which I dragged out and put in the bed of my truck and I called the 311, the city office, whatever thing and they said, well, there's no, uh, there's no Christmas tree drop-off locations until January. And, the, and then she said, but you can take it to the Britter, Bitters Road Brush Recycling Center. So I said, oh, great. Uh, threw it in, you know, had it, in, had it in the truck, drove over there, pull in. There's a huge pile of Christmas trees off in the distance. And I said, uh, just here to drop off a Christmas tree. She said, okay, just wait there while I get your vehicle weight. I'm like, my weight? I'm just dropping off a Christmas tree. She's like, well, you can't drop it off for free until January 1st, which we're, we're closed on January 1st and on January 2nd. And so, but you can drop it off on January 3rd at no charge. I'm like, this is crazy. So, she gets my gross vehicle weight. I go in. I dump the tree. I come back. Cost me twenty four cents to drop that Christmas tree off. I got home and I told my wife, "You owe me a quarter." I round it up. It's okay. Um, you know, if you had waited until the twelfth day of Christmas to take all your decorations down, we could have gotten rid of this thing for free. It's just This is a costly, costly decision. Um, so, several aspects to 
this, that was, was there a point to that? Was I going somewhere with that? Oh, the 12 days of Christmas. Like our city government actually understands you're supposed to wait till Epiphany to take your tree down. Right? I guess in a city full of Catholics, it makes sense. They don't have to worry about it except for the few people like me who married a girl that grew up Methodist. And what? Or Jewish. Or Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> like Christmas tree. Give me a break. Well, and Jesus grew up Jewish, so, you know, and he didn't have a Christmas tree. That's right. So, and he didn't even celebrate Christmas. Kind of weird. A Hanukkah shrub. Bring me a shrubbery. All right, I digress. I digress. We need to get back to God's word because that's going to save us all. Um, Okay. So we're still in the season of Christmas, which is where I'm going with this message. And, and it's appropriate to look back to Isaiah and his prophecy of the coming Messiah. And Isaiah looks forward into history and he foresees this one who would come, who would make all things right for God's people. And he tells us a few things about that coming Messiah in chapter 9, in several of his chapters actually, but in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this idea that the Messiah will bring peace to God's people is expanded upon by Isaiah in these passages. That this coming one this anointed coming one would bring with him peace to the hearts of God's people. Um, we'll read a couple of passages out of the New Testament. We read this one to the kids, or they, Andrew read it to us. Um, therefore, this is from Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then I thought it would be fitting to include a couple of quotes from Jesus himself. Uh, it's fascinating to think of, of this, the, the man, Jesus, as living and interacting with others in the knowledge that he is the fulfillment of these prophecies in Isaiah. Uh, Jesus was extremely familiar with the book of Isaiah. We, there are a couple of different places, several different places where he quotes from this book of the Bible. And so you can almost see the awareness of this prophecy on his mind as he utters these words. John fourteen twenty seven. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid. And then just a couple chapters later, in John 
chapter 16, verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you that you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So, I want to sort of take us into this question. How do we find peace in Christ? How does that work as a process, as a reality in real time? And it begins, I think, and and Isaiah is pointing us in this direction, but it begins, peace with God begins by or with believing in the promise of peace. This is a rather counterintuitive idea. Again, like I said with the kid, if you watch the news, just any news, local, international, whatever, it's just insanity. What's going on in the world is always crazy. And it's never at peace there's, there's never a leading story about peace, right? That doesn't, has to bleed to lead, so we don't get good news on the front end of a newscast. This idea that we can have peace in such an insane world is one that we, we do have to recognize the disparity between what God is promising and the reality in which we live. And at the same time, we have to we have to look past our current context and reality toward a future that includes peace. And that's what Isaiah is essentially doing. He's he's looking forward to this coming Messiah who will usher in a new era of of peace. So for us to enter into that era requires faith, requires us believing in something that doesn't seem real or immediate. Believing in the idea that God's Son, His promised Son, will bring peace. Uh, this, all prophecies in, in the Old Testament, or any, any, either Testament for that matter, um, have two prevailing components to them. They have an immediate context, which we see here. Uh, Isaiah is saying, "We to us a son is born, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Everyone who read that part of this verse probably thought he was talking about uh, a young man at the time who was in line to become king who was named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah would be one of the few good-hearted kings in the history of, of Judah, the country that, that was left after the civil war in Israel. Um, and so everybody would have thought, oh, he must be talking about Hezekiah, this, this wonderful child who's going to you know, restore Israel to its greatness. And then you read the second half of Isaiah 9, verse 6, and you go, I don't think that's talking about Hezekiah, a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. We might give him wonderful counselor and prince of peace, but mighty God and everlasting father, I don't think is talking about 
this boy who will become king. Every prophecy has an immediate context and it has a forward-looking truth that it's revealing. Um, I like to say you, you need what you, it's, it's healthiest to look at prophecy like fingerprints, the fingerprints of God on history. So when, when those prophecies or those words or ideas or concepts reoccur in the New Testament, you can, you can match them. You can go, that's a match. That's the same God who, who would have said this back then is saying, is fulfilling it here. Um, and so all that to say, Isaiah is pointing us towards this coming son in whom we are to believe. There's a couple of things that I find interesting about this prophecy. This idea that, that this son who is born to us will literally shoulder the responsibility for bringing peace to God's people. The government shall be upon his shoulder. So, that he will take responsibility for bringing the peace of God into our reality. He will literally take it upon himself. And that he will live up to his name. Hezekiah was a great king. No one in his lifetime called him mighty God or everlasting father. And so there's this hanging portion of this verse that just sort of sits there waiting for history to catch up to it. And Jesus comes into the scene. He is born as the fulfillment of this prophecy. And he literally shoulders the weight of this prophecy into reality. He just picks it up and carries it to the fulfillment of history. And this is the way God works. He reveals the nature of himself and then he demonstrates in real-time history and action his love for us. And that's what we see in Christ, the fulfillment of this promise that God's Son will bring peace and that God's Son will spread peace. This uh, verse 7 of this passage talks about the increase of his government and of peace and the establishing and upholding of his kingdom and then justice, justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And there's this idea that not only will Jesus bring the peace of God into our context, into our reality, but that he will then begin the process of spreading that peace around the world. There will be no end to the spread of his kingdom. And so... The spread of peace means that he will eventually reach all peoples. That the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of, of the peace that we have because of Christ, will eventually reach all kinds of people. Every different type of person on this earth. There's, a, there's an organization 
called Wycliffe Bible Translators. And they are committed to taking usually young candidates. So, Steve, you and I don't qualify anymore. We're, we're out of the pale for that recruitment arena. Um, but they take young candidates who are good at languages, and they send them to places, for example, in the Amazon, where there are people groups who have their own language, but there's no Bible translation in that indigenous language. So you can find uh, Wycliffe Bible translators in places like Indonesia. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of the most famous one recently. The guy almost got eaten. Um, there have been several, actually, Wycliffe Bible translators who've been eaten for lunch by the locals they were there to serve. I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. They're, they're in such remote places that they're in, encountering these very uh, primitive tribal cultures. But here's, here's what they're doing. They're trying to translate the Bible into every living language that's current on the earth in the belief that God meant what he said when he said there will be no end to the spread of, of the peace that comes through Jesus Christ. There are other Bible passages that talk about uh, the, the gospel going out to all nations. But just to suffice here to say that Isaiah somehow understands that the love of God was never meant to be kept inside the political boundaries of Israel. It was meant to explode out into the entire human population. And it will eventually reach every type of person, every language, every culture, every race, every uh, ethnicity, or however you want to uh, divvy up the types of people there are in this world. The gospel will reach Every type of person at some point. And there's an implicit call in this, right? If God's word, if his plan, his heart is to reach the entire world, guess what? Your call is to help him. Your call is to be a part of that. This is one of the reasons that we support missionaries all over the world. Uh, we have people, uh, we have one guy who I'm not even allowed to tell you where he's serving in the Middle East. I can tell you that. Uh, but he and his wife and his, I think, two kids, they could be executed for sharing the gospel in the country where they live. And they're there for the purpose of starting a church among people who've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, we we call them Benjamin and Monica Bailey. We pray for them periodically. Uh, those actually not their real names. They can't use their real names. They, it's it's crazy, right? But you are a part of this on a global scale, and you're called to be a part of this on a local scale to impart the peace of God to the people around you. God's Son will bring peace. God's Son will spread peace. This will eventually reach all people, and it will eventually eliminate all injustice. The root of of the lack of peace in the world is, simply put, injustice. God is the God of justice. 
He, is, he knows what's right and true and good. And so when the world is acting in ways that are counter to him, you can expect to see injustice, people being deprived of their basic humanity. Well, embedded in this promise from Isaiah about the Messiah is this idea that he will establish his kingdom on the throne of David and that he will uphold it with justice and righteousness. So all the things that you see in the world that are wrong with it will eventually be made right. We don't always correctly diagnose what's wrong with the world, but we can trust that the God who is in charge of history will one day bring it all to a point where all injustice is eliminated. And this is expected for those who are part of God's family to be about the business of eliminating injustice in the world. We should care the most about what is right and true and good, and we should take action accordingly. And so to believe in the promise of peace and to believe in the person of peace. We have to believe that God meant what he said, and then we have to see that he has fulfilled what he said in a person, in the person of Jesus Christ. That person has made you right with God. In that verse from Romans that Andrew read to us earlier, it says, you have been justified by faith. That, well, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word justified just means you have been made right in the eyes of God. That's, that's the best way to render that word, I think. So, Jesus has taken our messed up lives, our sinful disasters, and forgiven them, removed the sin from us, and he sets us before God in his righteousness. Think about that. I don't feel very righteous because I'm not in and of myself. I only can lay claim to righteousness based upon what Christ has done for me on the cross. And so we are all in this position where we have been made right with God by his obedience and by his sacrifice. It's what Christ has done for us that sets us in this position of having been made right. Jesus made us right with God and Jesus has given us peace with God. By atoning for our disobedience, as I just alluded to, he took our sin, paid the price on the cross, and set it aside, washed it, washed us clean of that guilt. And so you sit before God. This is, this is amazing to me that God looks down and sees us as clean and righteous and holy and precious. I don't feel so precious. I don't look so precious. 
That was an unnecessary clarification. Um, But God looks down at us and says, this is great. Look at my people. Look what Christ has done for my people. They are always at their best in Christ. God looks at you literally through that lens, and he smiles. And sure, I, I cause him to shake his head and say, oy vey, every once in a while, uh, or more, than, more often than that. But the truth is, he looks at us through that lens of Christ, having our disobedience atoned for. This allows us to rest, to spiritually rest. This is a massive theme in Scripture, this idea of rest. From the Old Testament all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation, this idea that we, in terms of our relationship with God, are at rest. We are at peace with Him. How do I explain this? I was talking to a, a group of high school kids at my daughter's school, I had sent an email to her history teacher because I couldn't stand some of the stuff I was reading in the history book. And I said, if you would like, I will come and I will do a 30-minute deal on the spread of Christianity um, and uh, just to try to help you know, add some perspective to what your material is covering. And uh, the teacher took the bait, and uh, um, so I, I go to the class, and I brought in a, I brought in a, a, my money jar. You got a money jar, Terry? Yeah, right? So you, you keep a money jar, and if, once it's filled up with your just your pocket change, right, then you can take it to the bank, and they'll turn it into real money, and then you can go buy a cigar that your wife doesn't ever see on the, on the receipt, right? You got, you get, it's, it's, Laundered money is what it is. It's great. Uh, sometimes I do get it out of the dryer, but that's not important right now. Um, so I took the money and I gave I gave money to different kids in the room. And I didn't mean to do this, but there was one there was one boy in the front who was actually an exchange student from China. And I put a pile of coins coins on his desk, and I have never seen someone so excited in my life. And he was just he was just giddy. And so I, had, I think I had three kids that that had money little, you know, handful of coins on their desk. And the first one, I said, okay, you're Greek, and you have 12 major gods that you have to worry about, and you've got several dozen more minor gods that you have to worry about, and some ancestors you have to keep happy. And so I made some other students in the class into Greek gods or goddesses, and I said, now you're you know, you're going on a trip, you gotta pay, make an offering to this goddess to make sure, and this is Poseidon over here, you don't want him to like wash your ship off the face of the earth, so you gotta better go to his temple, make a sacrifice, leave some money there, and you watch this girl's pile of cash dwindle as she has to go take care of all these various gods who might be moody, right? And then I had another student who I made into a first century Jewish person, and I said, oh, and by the way, uh, that you can't wear that. So you've got to go to the temple and make a uh, pay for a sacrifice to atone for the sin of wearing 
that school uniform because it's outside of the dress code for Judaism. And, uh, you know, and went on and, and had that student, I can't remember if it was a boy or a girl, going back to the temple and making, paying to make offerings and sacrifices repeated and that pile of money dwindled. And I looked at the Chinese kid and I said, you're free. You're free. You don't have to give anything. He was just blown away. And he was like, I get to keep this? I'm like, yeah, you get to keep it. It's your money, and you don't have to give any money. I said, now look at this poor kid in the corner. And there was a kid with a cast on his arm. I said, you might feel sorry for him. And you might just, like, give him something to help him because you want to. Do you want to? He's like, sure. And he gets up and gives the other kid a little, you know, some money. And I said, you're free. There's no obligation. There's no burden. There's no fear. You don't have to worry about your God being moody and changing his or her mind and wiping you off the face of the earth. You're loved. You're forgiven. It's done. You're at peace. Your soul can rest. And I think it was pretty clear to the whole classroom. And then we began to talk about the spread of Christianity And this idea of peace and rest and freedom in Christ and how radical that was in the first century. And it still is today. Um, All right. We have to believe in the promise of peace. We have to believe in the person of peace. And we have to believe in the power of peace. Spiritual peace displaces things in our soul. So look at it this way. (laughs) Um, If you're in a hot tub and Smitty gets in, what's going to happen? Well, no, well, it drops when he gets out, right? Yeah, you're going to drown if you just stay where at the level you're in, right? That's okay. It's all right. You're, you are right. It will go down at some point. But it, 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 there's a hot tub at his house and it's back next to his pool. And you sit in there. When he gets in, the waterfall into the pool, it sounds like Niagara Falls, right? There's a displacement. I love you, Smitty. Um, there's a displacement that occurs. The peace of God that comes through Jesus Christ works in the same way. It displaces things in our soul. It pushes other things out. It leaves less room for things like our anxiety and our fear. The more we sit in the, in the peace of God that is ours in Christ, or the more it sits and resides and dwells in us, the less room there is in our hearts for fear and anxiety. We are at peace because of what Christ has done for us. Spiritual peace displaces our fallen condition. How do I say this? Not every aspect of our fallen condition is sin. Right? So if I lose someone I love and I grieve, that's not a sin. It is a result of living in a fallen world. 
that we lose people that we were close to. But it's not a sin to grieve by any means, right? But the peace of God, as it dwells in our hearts, displaces all of these aspects of our fallen nature, whether it's our sins or the other results of living in an imperfect world. There's less room occupied in our hearts and souls by those worries and concerns and anxieties. Spiritual peace displaces our fallen condition, and spiritual peace coexists in our fallen condition. We talked about joy earlier in this series, and one of our youth, who's not here today, uh, but had made a comment in youth group Bible study one night that the difference between joy and happiness is that, and I wish I could remember how he said it, but it was, it, you know, it was, it was so like sharp and clear that Scott actually just got up and wrote it on the board. Like, dang, that's good stuff, and I'm too dull to remember it. But anyway, um, the gist of it was that happiness is dependent upon our circumstances. And joy, joy transcends our circumstances. We can have joy even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And peace is the same way. We can be at conflict with others in our life and still have the peace of God in our hearts. Now, that peace of God should displace some of that angst and conflict that we have. It should speak to it and inform it and and help it to resolve. But at the same time, we live in a crazy world, and God understands that. And he says, my peace transcends the insanity of this life. You can have this gift now, even in the midst of difficulty and suffering. We can find peace in the midst of difficulties And we can find peace that transcends our difficulties. This is the promise of God in the person of Christ for the people of God. The power of peace in our souls. Will you pray with me? God our Father, we thank you that you have moved in our hearts and in our lives and in history to bring to fulfillment the promise of peace and that you have made us right before you. We have no more fear or anxiety over pleasing you or satisfying you or not swaying your mood in the right direction. We know that we are yours and the peace that comes from that transcends even our own suffering and difficulties. And so we thank you for that which is ours in Christ, the grace, the forgiveness, the love, the rest, and the peace for our souls. It's in his name we pray. Amen.